The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to, to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who have been sent returned to their house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Nate. I love this passage. Uh, There's a lot going on in this passage. You might look at it on the surface and say, it's pretty simple, but the complexities of what it was like to live in Palestine during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry makes this passage just a knot um, because you have religious leaders standing in the in representing and vouching for the reputation of a Roman official who has a servant who is sick. And the whole reason that the centurion is there is because the Romans have occupied Israel. And Jesus has this reputation of being a healer and he's being called upon to come and step in and do something to help. And what I love about this passage is... And I want us to really find ourselves in this, in this passage in terms of, of how do we think it works when it comes to wanting God to do something for you? Is it, a, is it something you, you negotiate with God? Is it something that you bargain for? Is it something that you say, I deserve it because I've done X, Y, and Z, because I'm a, I'm a decent person? What I love about this passage is, is you see in it a system where people are bargaining with God. They're bargaining with God. And we can't bargain with God. And the reason we can't bargain with God is we don't have anything to bring to him. And so let's get in it. I don't want to give it all away here at the beginning. Um, but let me ask you a series of questions. And just as we're you know, here in this place between Christmas and entering a new year, your spiritual life, is your spiritual life built on a system of merit? Do you, do you ever feel that God owes you something? That there's something that you want that from where you're sitting you just think, 
I deserve this. He should, he should give this to me. Have you ever been disappointed with God for not giving you something that you feel you plainly deserve? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you're just, you're just assessing God and you're feeling like he let you down in something that shouldn't have been that complicated for him? You know what we're doing when we try to live this way? What we're doing is we're, we're trying to construct a system that makes sense of a world that we can control, that we can influence, that we can have some sway over. And there's this battle that's going on in the hearts of everyone who, especially everyone who lives in the West. There's this battle in our hearts to impose on God a system of merit. And there's a level of arrogance to it in that each of us is, were presuming that if God were to treat us as we deserve, then we would get something good out of that arrangement. There's nothing in Scripture that supports that, right? There's nothing in Scripture that says, the harder you try and the more you work at being righteous, the more you impress God. That conversation ends with a cross and an empty tomb, right? If what God says is actually what you need, is you need nothing less than the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in your place. And for all of your sin to be placed upon him and all of his righteousness to be placed upon you. If you need nothing less than that, then how can we even begin to presume to live in a system of merit? But we want to because we can control that. At least we think we can. And the fatal flaw with this kind of reasoning is that we base our sense of merit then not according to how we feel we relate to God, but how we feel we relate to other people. And then we put ourselves in that position where we start looking around at other people and we start saying, well, I'm better than them. That should count for something in the eyes of God, which ironically is an affront to the eyes of God, right? That, that we would stand and say, I'm better than somebody else who's made in your image. But that's where we go. And so I want us to think about where we operate on a system of merit with God and others. And I want to give you here at the beginning my main point. Um, and I'm just going to give it away now in case you need to leave early. Uh, just kidding. I want you to have it in front of you um, as we think about this. So here's the main point. Our relationship with God will never be based on our merit. It'll always be based on the merit of Christ. Never on our merit. It'll always be based on his mercy shown in the sacrifice of Christ. And because this is so, we can freely ask him for anything because he gives not according to karma, but according to grace. And then we can trust his response is always good, even when he doesn't give us what we want. This is a long main point, but what I'm basically trying to say is our relationship with God will only ever be based on the merit of Christ. And we can ask him for anything because that's the case, and we can trust that however he responds, he's being good to us. So today's passage involves a miracle. But as you saw the passage, you might have noticed it's, it's, it involves a miracle, but it's not exactly about a miracle. Um, it, when you look at it, you see that, that the miracle happens, but what really happens in this passage is there's a, an exchange, and Jesus is amazed by it. There aren't many places in Scripture where Jesus is amazed by what people do. There's this one where he's amazed by somebody's display of faith, and then there's another one in Mark 6 where he is amazed by a complete and utter lack of faith from the religious leadership. Those are the two places in the Gospels where Jesus is amazed. 
So, so it's important when, when, we, when we see Jesus being amazed by something to stop and take a look that, that he's having a moment where he's seeing something and he's saying, there it is. So what is it about this passage? Why this passage? In a passage, in a, in a, in a gospel that's filled with so many miracles, why is this one something that, that stops and amazes Jesus? And so what I want us to do is we're going to walk through this passage in basically three phases. The first phase is we're going to look at the historical context and the particular situation in which the story occurs. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the exchange itself, and then we're going to finally look at the outcome, both the immediate and then the long-term outcome. One of the best things we do is we look at the situation here. One of the best things we can do as Bible readers is commit to learning about the context of Scripture, to be constantly accumulating a sense of the context of scripture, of what was happening culturally, it helps us, right? It helps us to understand what a centurion is, what a Jewish elder is, what their relationship was like. It helps us. Many years and many cultural shifts separate us from the original intended audience of the biblical text, but the immovable thing and the thing that we all have in common is that we're people. And so there are always points of connection, even if this happened in a language we don't speak in a country we don't live in, in a culture that we don't, we don't operate in. And so I want to get into that a little bit, the context, very briefly. Uh, some of this will be familiar to many of you. Some of it may be new to some of you. Um, but here's the deal. Israel was occupied by Rome. This was during the time of the Roman Empire. Gentiles ruled over Jews. Polytheists ruled over monotheists, right? The, the Romans who embraced many, many gods and even saw Caesar as a god we're now ruling over the Jewish people who believed in only one, only one God. And things were tense. And Rome had this way of ruling over religious people. And they did it with the Israelites, and they did it with other religious groups too. And they, they were shrewd in the way that they approached ruling religious people. And what they did is rather than squashing all of their customs and saying, you're going to be like us now, Instead, what they did is they let them continue their religious practices. And what they did is they appointed the religious leaders as liaisons between the people and the Roman leadership. And so the thinking was, let the people keep the thing that they hold most dear and then remind them that their freedom to keep it hinges on them honoring Rome and paying their taxes. That's pretty shrewd. But then it also, another layer of it is, and let's also place governors over regions and give them captains who will carry out the leadership on the ground over communities, like a centurion. A centurion was a military official, kind of like a town sheriff who had 100 deputies. So centurion, you hear the word century in there. It means that a centurion was somebody who, ruled a hundred, who had 100 people reporting to him. He had 100 soldiers. And so what they would do is they would then expect the centurion to do whatever it took to maintain peace. Sometimes their jobs depended on it. Sometimes their lives depended on it, depending on who they reported to. And so the arrangement then that Rome would create would require both the religious leaders and the local Roman authorities to learn to live in peace with each other. It was shrewd, right? Because both sides then had an incentive for order. And it didn't take a heavy hand. And so what would happen is, is the two parties would come together and they would have to figure out how this is going to work. 
And often, the arrangement took on not only a workable quality, but sometimes even like we see in this passage, a tone of mutual respect and honor, helping each other. And so our text happens in that context. It happens in Capernaum. Uh, Jesus had just finished uh, delivering Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. So we get the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, verses 5 through 7. Uh, but here in Luke, we get it uh, in these earlier chapters, in, in 5 and 6 of Luke. And it's a lot of the same material. It may have been the same sermon occasion. It may have been different. What probably was happening is, is Jesus had a sermon that he would preach, um, on number, a number of occasions that would have these vignettes. And so you see the Lord's Prayer and a kind of a form of the Beatitudes in this. Anyway, I'm going off the rails with that. But Jesus just finished delivering Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. And the sermon um, and much of Jesus' ministry up to this point was happening in the northwest coastal region of the Sea of Galilee, which is where Capernaum was. And Capernaum sits right there on the North Shore. And for all intents and purposes, Capernaum was Jesus' hometown during his earthly ministry. We know that he, that he lived in Nazareth. But when you look at the, the, the ministry years of Jesus, Capernaum is his base. And he seems to have lived with Peter at Peter's home. And so he lives right there. And the centurion was respected in Capernaum. And this is the town that he ruled. And because of the goodwill he showed, specifically in overseeing the building of the synagogue the religious leaders regarded him as somebody who was worthy of honor and respect and even worthy of divine help if he needed it. And so I've sat in the synagogue in Capernaum. If you've ever been to Israel and you've ever done a tour over there, the chances are really good that you went to the Capernaum synagogue. And we're in it. it's there. The ruins are there. The synagogue that this centurion either built or helped build. And, and, and it's hard to overstate how beloved a place like this would have been for Jews living on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Because the synagogue was more than just a local church. It was kind of the heart. It was the city center of the town in many ways. And so what happens is the centurion's servant becomes ill to the point of death. The servant was important to the centurion. Uh, we don't exactly know his motives, but, but we know that he was important to him. Um, but the thing was, with all of his authority, with all of his power, with a hundred people at his command, the fact was there was nothing he could do to help. He couldn't bring his servant back from the point of death. There was nothing he could leverage to do that. And the centurion had heard about Jesus because Jesus has been teaching and performing miracles in this area for a while now, and reputation has preceded him. This is the part of the story where wherever Jesus goes, crowd begin, crowds begin to form. People begin to press in around him and touch him. This is where he has to go out on a boat to talk to people because the crowds are pressing in. The centurion has heard about Jesus cleansing the lepers in Luke 5, taking away Peter's mother, mother-in-law's fever in Luke 4, casting out demons in Luke 4, healing the man with the withered hand in Luke 6. So he's heard about all of these stories. He knows that there's this healer in their town, and he knows that he has somebody who needs healing. And so he appeals to him. A quick word about the religious system of merit that was common in Jesus' day, because we have our own version of it now. Uh, but basically what it comes down to is the premise that a person should be rewarded or should be punished according to their own conduct, and we should be the judge of that. And so I should, I should look at somebody and determine, does that, is, does that person deserve kindness? 
Do they deserve help? Do they deserve uh, a resource that I have that could benefit them? And then you think, well, what have they done to deserve it? And that was the system that they're in, and you see it in play. Because the centurion helped build the synagogue, because the centurion loved the people of Israel, the Jewish leaders deemed him worthy of help in time of need. This is what they say, right? He's, he deserves this. He should be shown favor. You ever find yourself thinking of people in this way? Maybe you think of yourself in this way, right? Maybe you think you are undeserving of help and kindness. You think, I don't, I don't deserve anything good to happen to me. You have a low view of yourself and you just think, I don't, I don't deserve anything good. Or maybe you think of yourself as being more deserving than other people around you because of how you perceive yourself to be better uh, than other people. Sometimes what God does is he strips away the things that we look to for control and he leaves us in a place where all we can do is cry for help. That's where the centurion finds himself. He has nothing. He has nothing to leverage. And so he just needs, he needs intervention. He needs help. And when God does this with us, when he says, all right, this is going to be painful for you because you're, tr- you're trying to hold something together and I'm going to dismantle it. And sometimes it's something that's in the grand scheme of things not as big a deal as, as something else. Like maybe it's I, I lost a job that, that, I, <clears throat> that I liked. Or, and those things can happen. Or I, or, I, or I had an appliance break down and it felt like my, I, I was on the verge of financial collapse and ruin, right? And, the, and they were just going to repossess my house because my, my transmission went out in my car and uh, I can't afford that and that's going to be the end of everything that I love and hold dear, right? Has anybody else been in that place besides me? Um, I go there a couple times a year, you know, my washing machine broke. We're ruined. God is doing us, he's showing compassion to us when he does this. He's showing compassion to us to say, the thing that you're holding on to that makes you feel like you have control, I'm just going to, I'm going to pry your fingers back from that. And we don't enjoy that process, right? But it's always an act of compassion. It's always an act of compassion when God shows us the things that we trust in that don't have the power to save us. And God says, you have to let go of this thing that you are depending on. Because it can't save you, it won't save you. So what's the exchange that happens here? Remembering in the end... So there's, I know there's a lot of context. It just, I, I, want, I want us to have that because we can build on that as we, as we read Scripture and as we look at this passage, but it helps. Because let's look at the exchange that happened, remembering in the end that, that Jesus is amazed. He's amazed by this. So I've given you the setup. What happens is this. There's a centurion who knows about Jesus. He knows Jesus is a healer. And when his servant becomes ill to the point of death, he knows no power in Rome can help him, but maybe Jesus can. And so he sends Jewish elders to Jesus, which is a sign of humility and respect, right? He doesn't send a deputy. He sends somebody to Jesus who he perceives as like Jesus. Jesus is regarded as a rabbi, as a Jewish leader, and so he sends Jewish leaders to have this conversation, to, to, to begin the conversation. And they go and they vouch for his character. And what they say comes from a system of merit. 
They say, listen, the centurion, here's what you need to know about him. He deserves help. He deserves help because of the things that he's done. He built the synagogue, so he deserves a miracle. And so, can we take you to his house? Would you like us to escort you to his house? And Jesus follows. And so Jesus is going along with them. And then the centurion sends some of his own people. But here's the system of merit work. The, the presumption is, the, the baseline presumption is, Jesus, you're not going to believe this, but this, actually, this guy actually is worthy of kindness. Normally, the presumption would be that he's not. He's not because he's Roman. He's part of the Roman system. He's a Gentile. Uh, he's part of the occupying force. Um, and so anybody in that category would be unworthy of a good gesture, but not this one, they're saying. This, he's actually one of the good guys. Why? Because he invested in us. So give him what he deserves. So Jesus follows and he gets close to the house and the centurion sends more people, only now what he sends is he sends some of his own friends. So first he sent some of Jesus' friends. Now he's sending some of his own friends because they're the, sending the religious leaders were, were intended to, to kind of represent Jesus to Jesus, right? Now he's sending some of his own friends who are representing him to Jesus. And this is where the real conversation happens. And here we see what amazed Jesus. The centurion, you read the passage. What he does is he doesn't assert his authority, nor does he attempt to bargain based on his merit. Instead, he comes in complete dependence and humility. Empty-handed. And his argument even reveals his humility because this is what's called, an. if you're into critical thinking, this is called an argument from the lesser to the greater. That's the name of this kind of argument. Basically what he does is he says, he's somebody in authority and it works a certain way for him and Jesus has more authority so it must work even more like that for him. Right? He says, as somebody in authority, he can, he can speak a word, Things happen as though he was actually there himself. His word is as authoritative as his very presence. And so he can say, you know, build a gate out on this part of the wall and that gate will get built. You know, he can say, uh, put a checkpoint here on this road and a checkpoint will happen on that road. It's as though he's there. He uses his authority as an argument from the lesser to the greater. If he can command people and get things done from a distance, then surely somebody like Jesus, who has even greater authority, can do the same and then more. And then he tells Jesus, don't even, through his messengers, he says, don't even come into my house. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. And this is a sign of humility and respect too because he knows that a rabbi becomes ceremonially unclean when they enter the home of a Gentile and they have to go through a ritual cleansing process to be clean again. And so he's saying, I don't want to even put you through that. All he wants is just a, a word of healing. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Why, now that we're finally here at this place, why is this so amazing to Jesus? Well, the long answer to that question is ask Jesus <laughs> because, because I don't want to presume to tell you I know all the reasons why this was amazing to Jesus. But I think I can answer part of that. And it's this. The centurion does not ask Jesus to repay merit. He doesn't work in that system. He just doesn't do it. 
Instead, what he does is he asks Jesus to show mercy. Show mercy. And show it based on your unrivaled authority over life and death. He's not saying, do this thing for me because of what I have done to enrich the lives of others through my authority. He's saying, do this because you are merciful and you have authority over life and death itself. The centurion's request is not based on merit, but it's based on authority and he is yielding. And that's unheard of because the Romans are in charge. But what he's doing in this situation, he's saying, in this situation, I'm not. I'm not. He's not trying to bargain with Jesus. He's not trying to impress him. He is yielding to an authority that is greater than his own. This is great faith. Why? Because here's the thing. Every good thing that comes from the hand of God is undeserved mercy. Everything. Every good thing that comes from the hand of God is undeserved mercy. And somehow this centurion understood that what I want to ask Jesus, I don't deserve. And he won't give it based on my merit. It will have to be an act of mercy and compassion based on his authority to do what I can't. And so it comes from the compassionate authority of Christ who not only healed people, but lived and died in the place of sinners who would turn to him and say, only say the word and I will be healed. The centurion is modeling then for us how we approach God with what we need. We're saying, look, I don't have anything to give you. I don't have any, any basis to say I deserve this. I'm asking you, not based on merit, but based on mercy. I'm asking you not based on how good I am, but on your authority to do whatever it is you want. And so the centurion's faith mirrored how the gospel would play out, right? This is the outcome. We would find ourselves sin sick. We would find ourselves beyond hope unless Jesus intervenes and shows us mercy. And we could never depend on our own merit to save us or to move the hand of God because that would involve comparing our righteousness to his and we fall short of that every time. And so instead what happens is Christ freely shows mercy to the helpless. He freely shows mercy to the helpless. Our relationship with God will never be based on our merit. And that is the good news of the gospel. You will never be in a position where you are having to earn the kindness of God. Because it's a non-starter. You can't. You can't. It doesn't matter how many chances you get. If anybody says, you know, you believe in the God of second chances, that's not a gospel. You'll blow the second chance just like you did the first and the second and the third and the fourth. And the f- that's just how we are, right? We, we, can't, we can't live up to his measure of righteousness. Our relationship with God will never be based on our merit, but on his mercy shown in the sacrifice of Christ. And because this is so, We can freely ask him for anything because he gives, not according to karma, but according to grace. And we can trust his response as always for our good. Amazing faith. The faith here that astonishes Jesus is faith that comes to Jesus empty-handed and says, I'm not worthy 
of your mercy and your grace. But I know you are a God of mercy and grace. And I need your mercy and grace. And I'm asking you for your mercy and your grace. I bring nothing, but I'm asking for this. And I believe that Jesus' response of amazement was because the centurion was putting his finger on the heart of the gospel. So yeah, you don't bargain with God. You only receive. You only receive. And that has not and never will change. Pray with me. Lord, you are compassionate. You are slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You are merciful. You are kind. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. You put all of our unrighteousness on the shoulders of Christ on the cross and you give all of his righteousness to us, applying that to our account so that when we stand before you, when our faith is in him, you see the record of his righteousness when you look at us. We will never be our, find ourselves in a position where we can boast in that, in ourselves, but we can boast in the, in the mercy and compassion of Christ, and so we do. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that it is included in the canon of Scripture that we have this centurion who understood that with all of the material resources, all of the cultural and governmental authority that was bestowed on him, when it comes to ultimate matters of life and death, none of that has any power. But you do. And so help us to see the places in our own lives, Lord, where we bargain with you, where we come to you in, in a system of merit, thinking that we have somehow earned your kindness. Cause us to quickly repent of that and to say that, as the centurion said, Lord, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof, but I'm asking for your compassion and I'm asking for your mercy and your grace. And Father, we thank you that we know the rest of the story, that that is exactly why you came, to live in our place, to die in our place, and to give us life in your name, even when we didn't deserve it. We're grateful for this, Lord. We're grateful for how we're reminded of this when we come to the communion table, that this is the heart of our faith, that you have acted on our behalf to reconcile us to our maker, which is our greatest need and our greatest longing. So we thank you for it. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.